You are listening to the podcast of the Y Church of the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. And now we're going to go into reading of scripture. So I invite Emily up to share our verses. We're looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Thank you. Well, it's good to be back with you. I don't know if you noticed, but I was gone for a little while. (laughs) Our family was in New Zealand and in Papua New Guinea, getting to reconnect with family. My wife is from New Zealand, and friends, colleagues. And it was a, a wonderful three weeks, but always good to come back home as well. And, you know, we were in summertime weather in both of those nations, and it, we didn't come back to like a harsh Minnesota winter, so it, that's kind of nice too. This morning we continue in our Galatians study. Here we are at the end of chapter 3, looking at verses 23 through 29. And the first verse says this Before the coming of this faith, We were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So we can understand from that, looking at the law as a guard. We could think of it even as a a jailkeeper, someone that keeps things under lock and key. And therefore, you know, we are the ones being guarded, being locked up. Those words held in custody and locked up mean to be protected by military guards. So it's not a, a simple, easy thing of someone kind of caring and watching maybe when it's convenient. There's a kind of a strength and almost negative connotation that we hear in that, just the weight of this watchfulness, of this guard. And we see in a different translation, verse 24 in the NASB reads like this, Therefore the law has become our tutor, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So whether the law is understood as guard or as tutor or as both, both those words guard and tutor remove that sense of freedom, that it's this care, this watchfulness, this protection, and there's not a lot of room for one's own movement beyond that. The relationship with the law is neither personal or intimate, but is based on rewards and punishments. Things that were set forth way back in the Old Testament, over 600 commands of things to do and not to do, and what carried with those things too, of course, would be consequences of how those things were upheld or disobeyed. We read in Romans chapter 3 at the end of verse 20, through the law we become conscious of sin. So there's definitely a purpose that the law played, and it showed who we are and our our sinful condition, the ways 
that we may have, or that we have violated God's law. And if you don't know the rules, you're not going to know whether you've broken them or not. So the law does provide in that regard. And then just a couple verses ahead of where we are at this morning. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But we recognize that the law has limitations. There's only so much that the law was able to provide and able to do, but it is not life-giving, and we are not able to attain or receive that righteousness through the law. Again, verse 24 says, So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. So that righteousness, that justification does not come through observing a certain set of commands or doing enough of the right things. It comes through faith in Christ Jesus in what he has done. So the law shows us as we really are. And the law points to see Christ as he really is, as our Savior, the one who obeyed the law on our behalf and then died in our place so that we might receive the promised blessing. We need that rescue, that salvation that comes from Jesus is exactly that. It comes from him. It's not by our own works. It's not by our own doing. Nothing that we are able to muster up or to achieve on our own. And we need that rescue that he provides. I mentioned that our family was in New Zealand and Papua New Guinea the last few weeks. I did not drive at all in Papua New Guinea, which was very good decision. And I drove very minimally in New Zealand because, again, they have their steering wheels on the right side of the car. Their indicator, the turn signal, is also opposite of what you'd be used to. You're driving on the left side of the road, and there's a ton of roundabouts. And so I don't like any of those things. But Larissa's really familiar, and she was able to drive majority of the time. However, one night I did go down on my own to a different city to visit friends. And so I had to rent a car, and, of course, I had to drive. And did pretty good following the people in front of me, just doing what they did. Hoped that they were good drivers and that they were a good example to follow. But one night I met with a friend for dinner. And the car that I drive in Minnesota, I don't have to touch the lights, just automatically on and off. But there I had to turn it off or turn it on. And it was nighttime and I went to get dinner and I realized I've left the car lights on. And that's probably not a good thing. Even on the opposite side of the world, I think batteries work the same way. And so I ran outside. Thankfully, the car still worked. Turned it off, finished my meal. The next morning, I got up before the sun and drove down and had my headlights on. And you'd think I would learn that lesson from the night before, but I failed to. So I went back to the car, and it was dead. There was nothing that I could do to start the car, to get the engine to go, uh, to get myself moving where I needed to be. And I was not quite sure what to do. Called my friend that I had dinner with the night before. They were not available. I asked some people around me. Very humbling to be the American tourist that needs a lot of help. And most of the people I spoke to said no. Talked to a, a carpenter. Figured he, he must like have the right tools for the job. And he came and he helped. He was willing to help. But he could not jumpstart the battery. And so I ended up getting in touch with the equivalent of AAA in New Zealand. And sure enough, they came, and my, my new friend Neil came to the rescue. And he got the battery going, 
and I was able to, to be on my way. But apart from Neil, I was not able to get out. Even with a guy that was supposed to be able to help me, uh, it was not the right situation, not the right setup for whatever reason. didn't work. And I think in that small example, we can recognize how we are in need of a Savior, in need of a rescue that we cannot do on our own, and there's no one else that we can turn to but Jesus who's going to be able to provide that salvation and to provide that rescue for us. We see that Jesus has perfectly provided that way through his death and resurrection. Again, back to this verse in 24, we recognize the law was a stern supervisor. So there's this Greek word that would be transliterated as pi, de, it's a hard one, pi dogagos. And basically, it's a, a slave who worked in a home who would have been protecting children on their way to and from school. They were a necessary but negative guardian required by those who were not mature and free. So this child leader was a slave working in Roman or Greek households who supervised and guarded the children before they became adults. A non-family member, and after the child reached a certain age, this person was no longer needed. But while they were needed, they were a part of helping the kids get to and from school to see to it that the children behaved properly and that they stayed out of harm's way. So you might think of that as, um, I don't know, sort of a, a nanny, a chaperone, a guardian of some kind who's not the parent, who's not there all the time and who doesn't have that, that same authority or same power as a parent would. And Paul proposes that the law was like that for Israel. It had a certain necessary role in confining, in guarding, and in disciplining God's people during that time before Christ's arrival. But that time, of course, ended once Christ came. We see through these verses a couple functions of the law, that the law served to identify sin. Again, if you don't know what the rules are, you're not going to know whether those rules have been broken. The law also served to restrain sinful behavior in the time before Christ's coming. Again, not only knowing the rules, but what's at stake if those are broken or violated would hopefully, ideally, help to curb behavior that was not helpful. So that we see the law functioning as a mirror that's reflecting back to us our sinful condition, helping us recognize where sin is. It's functioning as a curb that controls and keeps order. And it also functions as a guide. It teaches us what we should and should not do. The law shows us our sin and our need, therefore, a Savior. Verse 25 says, Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So the law once had a constructive role to play in God's overall plan, but the role of the law has since come to an end. And according to these verses, the purpose of the law is protective custody. But living on this side of Christ's death, we are in a new age, a new time. The situation has changed. And so it's a whole different dynamic of no longer needing to be under that supervision of the law. It has served its purpose, and its commission has come to an end. With the coming of Christ, we are in a new situation where we are to live under the guidance of the Holy Spirit 
and not under the law. We will get to that later in Galatians chapter 5 as we progress through this book. The specific do's and don'ts of the Torah law are no longer that regulative for the Christian community. But you might be thinking as you're hearing this, well, what about things that Jesus said? Like Matthew 5, we hear that Christ came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And again, in Matthew 22, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So if you look through, you know, over 600 different commandments given in the Old Testament, you can identify many that would fall into that category of, of loving God with our everything and loving our neighbor as ourself. So Paul's not trying to say that, you know, the Ten Commandments, that, that we no longer have to not lie or that it's okay to steal now, but it's not going to be saving us to follow these commands. It's only Christ who saves us. Because with the coming of faith... Believers have come of age. There's this maturing that has happened and no longer required to be under the control of this attendant, of this guardian, the law. Verse 26 says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. This is a statement in the present tense, not a future goal to hopefully attain. We are children of God when we have faith in the Son. It is through faith that God adopts us. And as God's children, we then are heirs. There's an inheritance for us to receive. And as we consider faith, we remember the words of Hebrews chapter 11, that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I'll give you another example. If you remember my last sermon, I shared about an experience in Walmart. And I think all the best sermon illustrations come from Walmart. So the other day... I was at Walmart and saw these sleds were for sale for $5. And I know there's no, like, snow that you could sled on right now, but it seemed like a really good deal. And I have faith that snow will indeed come again in Minnesota. Maybe it won't be in this winter season enough to sled in, but I believe and trust that snow will come. And therefore, if that silly example can hold true, How much more is it required of us, important for us, to have faith in Jesus? We weren't there to witness his crucifixion. We weren't there to be an eyewitness to his resurrection. But we have faith that what he has done is all sufficient, that his sacrifice counts and means something for us today as well, that we trust what God has revealed through his word and that we place our faith, our trust in him and him alone for our salvation. All of the Galatian believers, without distinction, are already children of God in Christ Jesus through faith. The same spiritual reality holds true for us today. If we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, then there's no further action of circumcision or religious observance required to secure this status. We are children of God. It is by Jesus' faithfulness in his gracious act of faithful self-giving that the Galatians have been brought into God's family as children. Again, the same holds true for us who have placed our faith in Jesus, receiving him as both Lord and Savior. 
Now, Paul tells the Gentile Galatians that in Christ, they are now given that title of sons of God, of children of God, something that would normally previously have been reserved for the people of Israel alone. But now this incorporates through Jesus anyone that includes you and me having that availability and that opportunity to be counted as a child of God. It's children, we become children of God through faith, not by legal works. And we come into the body of Christ, into that believing community through that faith in Christ, which we see sealed in baptism. Verse 27 says, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So this idea of clothing ourselves with Christ implies a few different things. It implies our primary identity is in Christ. It also implies the closeness of our relationship with him, that we would imitate him, and it implies us being acceptable to God. Again, not because of our own work, our own doing, our own merit, but because of what Christ has done. A Christian can never need some additional commitment to the law of Moses in order to receive or maintain full acceptance with God. He or she is clothed with Christ. And in being clothed with Christ, baptized believers experience union with him and take on his character. And we see that baptism marked the Galatians believers' passage into a new life. Paul sees baptism as signifying union with Christ, which entails death to one's old life and entry into a new world. And again, of course, this applies to us today as well. Verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So verse 26, really look at the intimacy between Christ and God the Father. Verse 27, we see the closeness between Christians and God the Son. And here verse 28 shows us the unity that there's supposed to be amongst Christians, from Christian to Christian. There is no division between different races, different social statuses, or genders. Unity in Christ transforms social divisions. In this new life, none of the old social distinctions have any advantage or superiority before God. There was this practice in ancient society where the oldest son inherited virtually all of the family estate. Paul tells his readers that every Christian, both male and female, is equally God's heir, heir to all of which Jesus is heir. The good news of the gospel creates unity. In the old age, the law protected the religious and cultural separateness of the Jewish people, which set them apart from all other peoples, set them apart from the Gentiles. However, in Christ, the separateness is ended because Jews and Gentiles are brought together as one new people of God. Distinctions of social class, ethnic distinctions, distinctions of gender are negated in the new creation. As children of God, Christians are brothers and sisters without any sort of social hierarchy. And we see that phrase, there is no longer male and female. To say that this created distinction is no longer in force is to declare that the new creation has come upon us. A new creation in even which gender roles no longer pertain. 
If the church is to be a sign and foretaste of the new creation, it must be a community in which distinctions such as these have lost their power to divide and oppress. Again, not that there be one superior or inferior to another. This does not mean that men cease to be men or that women cease to be women. It does mean that these gender distinctions are no longer those determinative identity markers, no longer a ground for status or exclusion. As we see in the end of 328, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ, the distinctions of ethnicity, of class, of gender are irrelevant in terms of any one being better than another. Our identity, just as the Galatians, is given fundamentally through our union with Christ. In baptism, we put on Christ. We enter into union with him in such a way that all other markers of status and identity fall away into insignificance. Just like the Galatians, we are to find our identity in Jesus Christ alone. For the Gentile Christians who are uncircumcised, they are not to be viewed as second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And they should recognize themselves for who they are as children of God on an equal footing with the Jewish Christians. Again, both Jew and Gentile owe their children of God status not to their own work or their own doing, but to what God has done in them. The law kept Gentiles out of the privileges of the people of God, and it kept Israel apart from the rest of mankind. But this division has been overcome by what Christ has done in redeeming people. Even those who were enslaved, they, in the family of God, though they may be a slave in the outside world, were able to have equal rank with their brothers and sisters in Christ. It could even be that an enslaved person in the Galatian context would be given, entrusted with spiritual leadership in their church environment, that someone who is a freed person would have to even submit under their leadership. Again, in Christ, having that equality, having that sameness felt across no matter what the distinction may be that we would find ourselves in, be it gender, be it status, be it cultural ethnicity. And verse 29 says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The Gentiles are brought into a state of freedom, and they're taken into God's family as children who are received as God's own people, as Abraham's children. So if Christ is Abraham's offspring, according to the promise, then those who belong to Christ, participating in him by faith, whether or not they're Jewish or Gentile, they are likewise also Abraham's offspring. And we saw a few weeks ago those that were in the Galatian environment that they were sharing that people had to be circumcised in order to come into relationship with God, that they had to follow that part of the covenant that Abraham had with God. And we see that this is not what is required, that Paul is saying that the union with Christ by faith is the only way of becoming Abraham's children in the sense that matters for God. So as we look at this passage, there's a few things for us to consider and to apply. Any sort of religion that's not based in the truth of the gospel is going to be characterized by a a sense of bondage 
having an impersonal relationship with God, which would be motivated by a desire to have rewards and to be fearful of punishments, which would then result in anxiety in our standing before God. But we see in this passage how faith refers to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It refers to the act by which his faithfulness to God was embodied in his self-giving death on the cross. And this was the ultimate fulfillment of his mission to set humans free from bondage. The law did have a temporary role as guardian, and that time and that guardianship are over. But the authority of Scripture still very much has a powerful and needed place and voice in the community of faith. Where the law cannot confer life and righteousness, where the law does not lead us to Christ, rather it is Christ came to us in our imprisonment and he set us free. The law divides and separates. It is Christ who unites and sets us free. And those are all things for us to hold on to from this passage as we reflect on it, of what it means and meant to the Galatians, but also what it means for us today, that we would be counted as children of God, not by our own works, not by our own doing, but simply by what Jesus has done and only in that that we would place our faith in him, that we would live lives unto him in faithful trust and then be counted as children of God. What an amazing thing for God to call us a son or a daughter and to receive that truth that we live according to it in our lives, in our personal understanding, in our relationships with others, and in our relationship with God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming. That you lived for others, you died for others, and that you have risen victorious. Thank you, Jesus, that because of you, we can experience that wholeness, fullness of relationship with God. We thank you, Father, that you would call those who choose you children of God. We thank you that we can belong to you and call you Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.